You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. At last count, there are over 40 diseases treated by cord blood products. What are some of these illnesses, and how does umbilical cord blood transplantation save the day for these patients? Today we are discussing umbilical cord blood transplantation. In this segment, we will be focusing on the specific diseases treatable or perhaps even curable by umbilical cord blood products. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Maury Kraus, founder and chief technology officer of Viacel, a company specializing in cord blood banking and research. Welcome, Mr. Kraus. We are pleased to have you on the show. Great to be here. Okay, well, I have a bunch of questions about these 40 diseases that can be treated by cord blood products. Certainly, some of the most obvious that come to mind are uh, cancers. Childhood cancers, for some reason, sticks out in my mind. Which childhood or adolescent cancers can be treated by or helped with cord blood products? Essentially, the leukemias like AML and ALL, but other cancers that don't involve the blood system but involve intense radiation and chemotherapy which require that the blood immune system be rebooted, can also be transplanted. And this might be, for instance, neuroblastoma or a variety of other cancers. And for the obstetricians in our audience, can you tell us what AML and ALL stand for? AML is, uh, stands for acute myelogenous leukemia, and ALL is for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. What other diseases can be treated besides the cancers? Well, in addition to cancers, the 40 diseases that are today treatable with cord blood involve broad classes of diseases, including bone marrow failure syndromes, hemoglobinopathies, and other blood disorders, inborn errors of metabolism, and immunodeficiencies. Oh, I see. In the case of many of these diseases, you're looking at heterologous uh, transplants. You're not looking to transplant the child's own blood. You're looking for related donors that don't have the condition. Is that correct? Exactly. And there are many cases for which you would not want to use the child's own cord blood to treat them. But as we've found, generally these diseases run in families. And having a sibling cord blood that is heterozygous, in other words, that isn't homozygous for the disease, makes an excellent graph. So 80% of the transplants or more in the family banking system to date have been used for siblings for that for that reason. This leads to a question about the mechanism of storage. I know that as a clinician, I can offer patients the opportunity to donate their cord blood into the general banking system, or they can actually store it for their own family use. Is that a correct understanding? That is a correct understanding, although we should take a minute to survey that issue or those different choices. First, with public banks, we very strongly recommend public banking, and we very strongly support the Institute of Medicine's call to establish a national cord blood bank. But what we need to realize is that a unrelated cord blood uh, transplants or unrelated grafts in general are not as good with regard to outcome in transplants as related grafts. We should also realize is that there are very few institutions in the U.S. where cord blood can be donated for public bank inventories. So if you do not birth at one of the dozen or so hospitals in the United States that do public banking, you will not be able to donate your cord blood. What is the difference between public and private banking? The difference, so we, we generally call what you call private banking family banking, just to 
get away the connotations that it's versus public because they're really, both of these things can coexist. They're both necessary. They're both complementary. So public banking is where you donate a unit to the public bank. And under those circumstances, in greater than half the time, probably between 50 to 90% of the time, a core blood unit that is donated may not make it into the inventory for a variety of reasons. It may not be large enough or it may not pass health history questionnaire criteria. So only a fraction of the cords that are donated end up in the public banking system. And that's for a good reason because those are being used for unrelated donors, unrelated transplants. In the family banking system, the family takes the option and also takes on the expense of banking a cord blood in a family bank. And under that circumstance, that unit belongs to the child under the guardianship of the family. It's essentially the family's unit to do what they want with. And they will keep that in storage. And hopefully, uh, we hope and they hope they'll never need it. But if they do need it, they may have the opportunity to have a better choice of transplantable graft and possibly better uh, clinical outcome if they use a related unit. I see. Why do you say public banking is only available in a dozen institutions since the hospitals I deliver at, the patients have a choice as to whether they want to simply donate the blood or keep it in the family bank? I'm not sure where you deliver at, but that's the case for about a dozen institutions in the United States, but not there's you know, thousands of birthing hospitals. And so for the, for the vast majority of the 4 million birthing parents, they don't have the option to public bank. For those who do, we believe that there needs to be good informed consent so that they have the option and the understanding of the value of either keeping the cord blood or putting it into donation. One thing that we absolutely abhor is the fact that so many units are discarded without any education and informed consent. So we work very hard with obstetricians to educate them and to bring educational services into the OB office and provide educational materials so that at least parents are educated about the value of the cord blood. And then they can make a decision as to whether they bank in a public bank or in a family bank. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Maury Krauss, founder and chief technology officer of Viacel. Today we are discussing umbilical cord blood transplantation. This segment has been focusing on the specific diseases and the process by which families donate umbilical cord blood for subsequent use. I remain a little bit confused because I know that the patients that we collect cord blood on, regardless of what company we're using, the patient has the option of donating it or paying a fee to have it banked for them personally. And this is where I get confused because I deliver at three community hospitals. These are not NIH research centers. And the patients have this transaction directly uh, with the cord banking company, and the hospital really isn't involved. So could you clarify this for me? Because at least as far as I understand, they can either donate the blood, in which case the company just takes the blood and doesn't charge them anything, or they can specify that it's for family banking and then they pay a fee? Well, there are some hybrids developing where family banks will do some public banking. Those are, that's actually very rare. But in, in the most cases, I'd have to say that if you look around the country at the birthing hospitals, that it's actually a very small percentage of hospitals for which you can do both what I call formal 
public banking. And you can do family banking, of course, at, at any hospital because that is a transaction between the customer and the family banking service. What we do is we'll send a kit to the family and they'll take that to the L&D and they'll use that to harvest the cord blood. But in the vast majority of cases, most people don't have the opportunity to bank in a public bank. I should note that of the 4 million births per year, just to give you a sense of the magnitude of what we're talking about, of the 4 million births per year, the target for the National Cord Blood Bank, as prescribed by the Institute of Medicine, is to have a national inventory of 150,000 units. And that inventory right now is around 75,000 units and has been building since about 1993. So the notion that this is available in the public and that everybody has the option does not fit well with the fact that there are so few units in the public bank and so few that have gone into inventory at this point. It is growing. More centers are coming online for doing public banking, but it's still in the teens, the number of hospitals at which you can do formal public banking. Now, you raised an interesting issue before, and you mentioned informed consent. I'm a little puzzled about the importance of informed consent since, as far as I know, there is simply no conceivable risk to donating cord blood since it's going to be discarded anyway. Now, I know that there's an expense involved, and perhaps that's why patients need to be informed of the limitation. But can you explain a little bit better about what you meant by informed consent? I would divide what I had said into two issues. One is the issue of education, and the second issue is one of informed consent. What we believe is that education needs to come early, uh, around the third trimester, I mean early relative to the delivery, because families need time to consider their options, and they need to understand what happens when they throw a cord blood unit away, what happens when they donate a cord blood, and what happens if they choose the bank in a family bank. And the reason that informed consent is so important is that the units are collected, definitely post-placental delivery in the public system, And the question then becomes, you know, whose cord blood is that? And if the family does not know that that may have intrinsic value for the health history of the family, and for instance, you may have a family that has a child that's sick at at home with leukemia, and if you don't do appropriate informed consent, that unit may go off and may actually not make it into the inventory or may make it into the inventory and never, never be found. So there are very important rights and issues that need to be considered. When we collect cord blood for the family system, we have a informed consent built into our, our contract with customers. And, of course, they know what they're doing and why they're doing it. But if your cord blood is just being thrown away or put into the public system, you need to understand what the chances are that you'll have it again. You need to be able to confirm with your family that there is no immediate need for the cord blood and that you, in fact, don't have any reason to believe you may need it in the future. Those are things that families should be able to consider versus this this tissue and valuable source of stem cells just being uh, whisked away without any education or informed consent. So in short, if you donate to the public system, you may never see that blood again, even if you have a life-threatening disease that could be treated by it. Well, when you put it in a public system, you're speculating that you'll never need it. And you may, in some cases, find it there when you need it, but there's no guarantee. So you should not count on it. And you need to know that before you donate. Isn't there some concern that if you transplant the individual's own tissues, that the cancer may recur in 5 or 10 or 20 years since the person got cancer in the first place and 
you know, at least with the leukemias, there may be some evidence that there may be some genetic mutations involved? That's a very good question, and it needs to be put into perspective. The first place, most transplanters will not use an autologous unit for to treat a child that has leukemia, and the reason they won't is because there is evidence that in some units that belong to children, they know this by checking Guthrie spots, that some units that belong to children who later have leukemias, particularly acute lymphoblastic leukemia or ALL, that there can be uh, pre-leukemic cells in the cord blood unit. I want to thank Maury Kraus, founder and chief technology officer of Viacel Corporation, who has been our guest. We have been discussing umbilical cord blood transplantation. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.